Hey everybody, I hope you've had a great week since the last time that we got together. Mine's been really great, especially last weekend. You know, it started off with getting together with my friends for lunch, like I said in the last episode. And then the following day, I had a really great talk with one of my girlfriends, Stephanie. I'm really looking forward to sharing that episode with you. It's going to be a really good one. Sunday, Sophie and I went to downtown Los Angeles to the Wake Me When I'm Free, the Tupac Shakur Museum experience. And I know that Tupac is a divisive figure. I think he had a dichotomous personality. There was a lot associated with Tupac that emulated the gangster lifestyle, that thug life that he had tattooed across his belly. So there's all the legal issues, right? I'm just going to rip off the band-aid and start off with the most notable one, which is the rape case. He was accused of sodomizing a woman along with four other men. I'm a huge defender of women's rights, and I don't want to see any woman being abused like this. This is criminal. However, this was a very grayscale case. Shakur ended up being acquitted of three counts of sodomy and the associated gun charges, but he was convicted of first-degree sexual abuse for forcibly touching the woman's buttocks. The thing is that there were no real credible witnesses in this case, and it was her word against the men's words, and it all happened inside of a hotel room. Later on, it came out that the woman was associated with some of his rivals, and there's a belief that he had been set up. She did seek $10 million in punitive charges once those accusations were dropped, but Shakur did spend time in federal prison. A lot of it was in solitary confinement, and he was eventually released on a $1.4 million bond. Part of the terms of his release required him to do road work service, and when he failed to show up for that, he was sentenced to 120 days. I believe that was eventually dropped. There was another case where he was accused of shooting two white officers who said that Tupac just pulled up and shot them while they were talking with the driver of a car that almost struck them while they were crossing the street with their wives. Interestingly, one of the police officers was charged with firing at Tupac's car and later of making false statements to investigators. And the second officer, these were brothers, and this was in Atlanta. The second officer admitted to possessing a gun that he had taken from the police evidence room. So eventually, all the charges were dropped against both of them because there just wasn't enough credibility on who started what. And the officers, one of them settled out of court and the other one filed a $2 million default against Tupac's estate. There are two more notable cases that I'd like to mention. One of them was when somebody picked up one of Tupac's guns fired it, and the bullet tragically killed a six-year-old boy 
about two blocks away from the scene. It's never been solved of who fired that bullet, but he did have a court case in regard to that. And the other one is in 1991, when Tupac was becoming a much bigger, more visible figure. And he was jaywalking in Oakland and a police officer spotted him, resulting in police brutality. He was beaten for jaywalking. And there is a small exhibit inside of the Wake Me When I'm Free Museum. And there's a statement there by Tupac. And it is a direct quote, I never had a police record until I made a record. I think a lot of these cases are complex simply because there is not enough evidence. There are not enough credible witnesses. I do believe that Tupac was a victim of his success. He was a victim of racism. He was easily recognizable, but he also wasn't guilt-free. And there were also the rivalries. So it becomes complicated. I I hate to call them games, but it's this strategy, right? It's almost like a chess game where one group will try to take the other, their rival down whether it's by bullet or whether it's through strategic means of muddying the waters and trying to make evidence stick. So again, there's a lot here. I thought I should start out with that because I do think that that is a lot of what Tupac is remembered for. He's a complex figure, a mixture of myth, truth, legend, good and bad, and definitely somebody who's worth learning more about. And then there was also that unflinchingly realistic portrayal of life side of himself, that unshakably honest side, which oddly has this caring air to it, which is kind of surprising when he's being protective of women, giving advice, telling men to back off, And then he's got this criminal record, right, for sexually abusing a woman. But yeah, rap does objectify women. So who knows what he did? I'm just adding that to the compendium of evidence that's helping me form my opinion of that particular case. And it just adds to the complexity of who Tupac was. He was acquitted of a lot of these charges, which kind of emulated a bit of his mother's life, where she was arrested as part of a trial that was called the Panther 21 trial. They were charged with planning to blow up a bunch of department stores and police departments. And in the end, all 21 members were acquitted of all 156 charges that were brought up against them from the New York Police Department and the FBI. When she was released from prison, she was eight months pregnant with Tupac. He was named after a Peruvian revolutionary. There's a video out there. um, MTV did an interview with him back in 1995. He says there's a whole village. There's a bunch of people that are named Tupac Amaru, which is his middle name. I don't know if he ever made it to South America before he passed away, which is a shame. 
Um, yeah, you know, everybody's got an opinion about this rapper who died at the age of 25. He was very young. And he did a lot in his very short life, whether it was to fully piss people off or to really impress them. And I realized I was not really into rap at the time that he was killed or prior to that. There, you know, there were some songs that I liked. There were a few catchy songs or a few of those crossover songs that I liked at the time. I was more into rock and roll. And there is some resistance, some some adjusting to listening to something that you normally don't listen to, right? You hear a lot of anger, a lot of retributory lyrics in rap. Tupac had some of that, but he also had a lot of social observations, commentary on life. And I just want to interject to say that while I was listening to metal, my sister was fully into the rap scene. She was listening to Tupac. She was listening to Snoop Dogg, Public Enemy, LL Cool J. And then my mom was listening to salsa and bachatas. And my dad was listening to groups like the Doobie Brothers and James Taylor. And on top of that, there was a little concert place that was called Mikasita that was just about half a block away. And we would get blasted with mariachi on the weekdays and then hard punk, like black flag on the weekends. So I had some pretty good music exposure. This isn't the first time that I'm listening to Tupac. It's the first time that I am intentionally learning about Tupac. When you start listening to more, at least me, when I start listening to more of his music catalog, there is a pleasant surprise to it because it's easy to get stuck on the retributory lyrics that are in there. If that is a word, I'm not sure that that's a word. I'm going to look it up. Apparently, it is not. I have just coined a new word, retributory. What I mean to say is lyrics that are filled with thoughts of retribution. But you can get that in any genre. I think what is in one genre can be found in any other genre. And I don't mean to pick on country music, but it is considered to many the standard of wholesome music. And you've got Carrie Underwood singing about taking a baseball bat to both headlights of her cheating ex-boyfriend's car. I mean, we get hurt. We sing about it, right? And that particular hit is one of the longest charting hits in Billboard history. It is the third longest running hit of the 2000s decade. It just tells you, we get hurt, we sing about it, and the world responds. And when I'm listening to music, I choose what's appropriate for whatever I'm doing. And, you know, when I'm working out, that's when I want to hear those angry songs, because I want to get motivated to get through my workout. And a lot of those old songs do that. So I'm going to go off on a little tangent here. Just bear with me. You know, old music, and I have to laugh because any any release that is older than 18 months is considered old music. And that 
is hilarious, but old music going way back, way, way back, makes up 70% of the US music market, according to music analytics from a firm called MRC Data. And I found that revealing of the quality of music that is out there today. And I don't know if that's because of market saturation. I don't know if that's because of corporate pushes for certain music to be out there. There's kind of a homogeneity about music these days and much more social expression, uh, much more revelatory lyrics, I think, in older music. And that might be part of it, but it's certainly something worth exploring. And then there's the question of genius, the ones that really burst through all of the noise and make a mark like Tupac did, and who remain relevant years later, so much so that this is a type of classical music, not in the sense of instrumentals, not in the sense of Mozart and Bach, but in the sense of it's timeless. Regardless of what time period you're in, there's going to be a revolutionary. Uh, There's going to be a prodigy. There's going to be somebody that's doing something different than what anybody else has done. That said, with old music making up 70% of the US music market, it's created an opportunity to have a business of legacy artists. That's what they call them, legacy artists. And it's really lucrative. So you've got things like David Bowie's estate just sold for $250 million and Bob Dylan's songwriting catalog for $300 million. Remember when Michael Jackson purchased the whole Beatles catalog? That was just a huge deal. And now Michael Jackson's estate or his songwriting or music catalog has been purchased as well. So the reason for this, why it's so lucrative, is that these older artists have become so popular, even the streaming services are making it really easy to have access to them. And that results in fans. That results in audiences who are willing to go to these pop-up exhibits, like the one for Tupac Shakur, and things like hologram tours, NFTs, and of course, documentaries, the posthumous song and album releases. So this is big business. But moving on towards the end, you're going to hear a little conversation that Sophia and I had about the exhibit and music in general. And she mentioned that she knew this was going to be like a memoir, which is what inspired the title of this Inside a Rap Legends Memoir Museum. And that is exactly what it was like. This exhibit was so well done. It is full of artifacts. There's hundreds of handwritten notes and song lyrics, film ideas, thoughts that he had, television sets. So they give you headsets with a remote that activates the various sensors throughout the museum. And there are a lot of visual screens in there. It was just so well curated. Yeah, what an incredible life. His mother was eight months pregnant with him when she was released from prison. 
she was part of the Black Panthers, a group that started out challenging police brutality, racism, the inequalities of the inner city, oppression, and it did spiral into violence in many instances. Um, the case that Afeni Shakur was caught up in the Panthers 21 trial, everybody was acquitted of all of the charges in that particular trial. So there was some scapegoating going on as well. But that is not to excuse the violence that was the result of challenging a system of oppression and racism. And I'm just going to say, it, it just happens with every group. I think it's really important to take a look at the whole picture before judging an entire group based on only a part of it. I... um I'm going to go off on another tangent here, but this illustrates the point really well. I met a guy on a dating site, and yes, that dreaded dating site again. And we met at a yogurt shop, which I thought was kind of cute. But while we were talking, I just kind of thought, yeah, I think this is going to be a single yogurt date. And then we started talking a bit and found out that both of us were of Costa Rican descent. In fact, I think he was born in Costa Rica. He was very smart. And I thought, well, you know, we'll go on another date. If he calls me, there weren't a lot of sparks there. But you know, you start to think, well, we have something in common, and maybe eventually things will work out, which is really a bad idea, ladies, or anybody else who is thinking along those lines. If the sparks aren't there, the sparks aren't there. But he did reach out and he sent me a flyer one day and said, would you like to go to this with me? And it was a St. Patrick's Day fundraiser dinner. And I thought, okay, let's go on a second date and see if this works out. And I said, okay, without reading the flyer. I really don't have green in my closet for some reason. I do now (laughs) because of that date. And, you know, the funny thing is that when we had that conversation, he really reminded me of a modern day hippie. There were things that he said during the conversation that made me believe that one, he was a vegetarian and two, he probably drove something very modest and he shows up in a Tesla. And of course, he would have a Tesla. It's very earth friendly. I mean, he even called himself a tree hugger. I'm kind of consider myself a tree hugger too. But it would leave, you know, the smallest carbon footprint. And he had a job that afforded him that kind of luxury. Anyway, got to where this beautiful dinner was at. And they had corned beef, cabbage, you know, the whole shebang. Oh my gosh. And they had the most amazing Irish soda bread. Delicious. And like, they just kept bringing it to the table. And we were having a fairly nice time. And the speakers came up and they started talking about the military and the evils of the military and all of their gun firepower and how they were shooting people up and destroying the world And um, they had bases everywhere and how, you know, somebody came up and was talking about how he single-handedly got this group together 
at a local high school and ran the ROTC out of there. And they were being really vicious, one-sided, and extrapolating from that falsehoods. And their big speaker came from South America and was talking about the, the terrors that you see on the news. Her family members had been killed by cartels. She hated guns. And of course she did. Of course she hated guns and violence. You can't be immersed in that kind of an environment without it having a deep impact on your psyche. Um, and, you know, I was listening with rapt attention. So there was definitely a lot of empathy. I mean, it, it hurt my heart to listen to what she had to say. But the way that she took that story and spun it to equate it to what the American military was doing was surreal and, to be honest, infuriating. The issue was that my son at the time was a specialist in the military. He's a sergeant now, but he is an orthopedic specialist in a hospital that works very closely with the community. I have a lot of friends who have been in the military that have worked on infrastructure after natural disasters, humanitarian efforts. And yes, America does participate in war, and we have also provided a lot of valuable services. So the lopsided effect of that meeting was really interesting. At some point, this guy looked at me, (laughs) knowing that I'm a proud military mom, and said, do you want to leave? And I said, yeah, I think so. I think so. It was very hard to listen to all of this. But I wanted to hear it because I wanted to know what this group was about. It was about a lot of misinformed people who were very angry. And it's bad to be misinformed and angry because you create a bigger problem. And just going back to my original point that precipitated that story, having the whole picture of a group or a person rather than just the distilled elements that will bolster a particular image or will bolster a particular argument allows for understanding and for the objective of finding a solution. I think that that's what this group originally was trying to do. I think that's what Tupac Shakur's music is trying to do. I know it's very complex, and that's not what this episode is about, trying to find answers to these complex issues. But these are the issues that Tupac was born into as the son of two former Black Panthers. And he lived this kind of awareness. So it molded him and it influenced a lot of his music. You know, and another interesting note that just kind of deepens the understanding of how much that lifestyle affected Tupac is that when Afeni Shakur had him a month after her release from prison, she gave him the name Lassane Parish Crooks because she wanted to distance him and protect him from any connection to her and therefore the Black Panthers. She wanted to give him a name that wouldn't harm him. And she did not name him Tupac Amaru Shakur until he was about a year old. 
There were some interesting things that were revealed in the exhibit. For example, his mom considered books to be the greatest prized possession in a home. And she instilled in Tupac at a very young age the importance of reading. She had books in her house, every kind of book imaginable. She had the newspaper. She told him to read. But you've got to think, this guy's a rapper. He's a wordsmith. Where did that come from? It came from being educated at a young age in reading. And that just provides a little insight into the driving forces behind Tupac, a man who started out in the ghetto and continued on to attend the Baltimore School of Performing Arts to study jazz, poetry, dance, Shakespearean theater, and which led him to later on become a wildly successful rapper as well as an actor. That was the foundation that instilled in him the discipline, the focus, and the drive to become the artist that he was. And it tells me a lot more about his character than a sensational media piece does. A lot of who Tupac was revolved around his mother, right? She was an oppression fighter, a freedom and equality seeker. And she was a single parent raising Tupac in the inner city. Unfortunately, the obstacles of life resulted in her crack addiction. And so that influenced his music as well. But he seems to have a really soft spot for women in some of his songs, as I mentioned earlier, despite his criminal record. And one of my favorite songs by him is called Keep Your Head Up, which he dedicates to two young kids and starts out giving advice to Corrine, who is one of the children, and just letting her know that as a girl, she is strong and she will always be worth more than any man who might mistreat her. And he goes on to ask, since we all came from a woman and got our name from our woman, got our game from our woman, I'm reading the lyrics directly here. Um, I wonder why we take from our women, why we rape our women. Do we hate our women? And he says, I think it's time to kill for our women, time to heal our women, to be real to our women. And it continues from there. And this is one of those songs. He's got a couple of them that are prescient. There's a line in here. And since a man can't make one, speaking specifically about babies, He has no right to tell a woman when and where to create one. And it almost seems to specifically address what happened in Texas last year in that clandestine deal with nobody there to argue for women's rights. That's the beauty of music. Well-written music, it transcends time and is applicable to events that occurred in the past as well as those that are occurring now. I'd even go so far as to say that's the mark of a good activist, which he learned from his mother, whom he really loves. Although he does mention his mother in a bad light in this song because it's portraying the realism of life and his mother did become crack addicted at a point and he says I blame my mother for turning my brother into a crack baby 
one thing that you can say about Tupac is that he didn't shy away from the truth. He didn't sugarcoat it. He just said it the way that it was. As the song goes on, he's talking not just to women, but to the other child who was his godson, and through them to the rest of the world about how to treat each other and the difficulties of life. This song goes into how hard it is to grow up, especially being Black. But beyond that, the facts of life, it's tough to grow up. And I think we can all relate to that. I sure can. I have a saying that life is not fair and it's up to us to figure out how to enjoy it anyway, which would just be another way of saying, keep your head up and keep plugging away. And that brings me to the second prescient song that I was talking about as well. He's got a song that's called Changes, in which he talks about America having its first Black president. And sadly, he died before he was able to see that. He also has an incredibly powerful song and a video that's so hard to watch, but it's a very necessary video that remains relevant today. It's called Brenda's Got a Baby, and it's the story of teen pregnancy. It highlights the plight of impoverished inner city mothers. It touches on so much. It touches on the lack of education, the low level support of basically deadbeat fathers. It talks about incest, prostitution, drug abuse. It's basically the story of a young girl who is used as a commodity throughout her short life. It is a full story. Um, and I highly recommend watching it because I think it's a topic that remains relevant today. And then there's his gangster rap songs, right? Like Hit Em Up, which I actually find really interesting. It's known, widely regarded as a diss track. This is something that they used to do in the 90s. And it's something that they used to do during Shakespearean time. If you take a look at any of those Shakespearean plays, um, any of his contemporaries, there was so much verbal dissing going on. And so it carried a whole lot more weight. And I just find it interesting that that is something that Tupac studied. It's basically warning his rivals who were notorious B.I.G. and Puff Daddy, as probably everybody knows, They were right in the middle of a national feud, and this sent shockwaves through the community at the time because it's basically a warning, and it's pretty, it's got some pretty violent intent in there, really explicit language. And the thing is that it's kind of amusing at the same time, and that's why I think that Shakespearean disses were uh, what influenced the style of this particular rap song. This is something that Shakespeare's contemporaries did. This is something that Shakespeare did. If historically going back, Catalyst 16, that is sexual, violent, and ancient. I don't even know why I thought about that. But now that I did, let me see how old this is, because this is BC stuff. Um, He was born in 84 BC and died in 54 BC. So anyway, the disc has a long history while Hit Em Up is really violent, it's also kind of cool that it can be compared to some of these ancient writings. You know, there's that background with the acting, and there's also the avid reading. So I don't know, maybe I'm just putting too much into this. Regardless, it is one of my favorite workout songs. So what I've come to realize with artists like Tupac, there was a lot 
of showmanship. There was a lot of this use because there was also a lot of good things for the inner city community. He was definitely a revolutionary. And it's just really interesting to find out that some of what we've been led to believe is myth. And I think that's true of anybody. And some of it is true. And some of it we never knew about until we took a minute to find out about this person. I feel like the full story of who Tupac Shakur was, it's worthwhile. I highly recommend it. And I think it's going to be one that's going to leave you wondering how much more he could have accomplished, how much more he could have contributed had he lived. I take a look at Snoop Dogg, who was one of his greatest friends and what he's doing now. I mean, he's teamed up with Martha Stewart, for God's sake, and everybody kind of considers him the OG grandpa of rap. So, you know, I think he would have been 50 this year. Not sure, but I do recommend this exhibit. Go and check this out. Wake Me When I'm Free. It's on Georgia Street in downtown Los Angeles, right across from LA Live. In fact, I think... They're calling it, yeah, it's called The Canvas at LA Live. And it's um, it's actually across the street from the big complex itself. Other thing was, I did a bit of research on the exhibit itself because there's so many pop-ups, especially here in Los Angeles, that are promising a lot entertainment-wise, and they're not really delivering it sometimes. So you want to make sure that you're going to a exhibit that is worth your while. And uh, this one definitely was. Okay, I'm going to just follow this up with a conversation that Sophia and I had. I'm here with Sophia. Hello. And I thought, you know, two people could go through the same experience and have a different perspective on it. So... I thought it would be fun to talk to Sophie about this experience. We went last Sunday. We got there a little early. Mm-hmm. We kind of walked around a little bit before we went in there. We weren't sure if they're going to let us in. Did you have any like preconceived notions of what this was going to be like? Um, not really. I didn't. The, the cat is being ridiculous right now. That's Echo in the background. I think she wants to be part of the show. No, I didn't really have any preconceived notions of the exhibit because I didn't know very much about him to start out with. But yeah, I mean, I kind of understood that it would be like a, a, almost like a memoir, but in a museum type thing. That's a great word. It really was like a memoir. It was personal, intimate. What did you think when we first walked in to that white room? It was like really overwhelming because of how big the pieces were that were in there. I did think it was cool that they made them like three-dimensional. Like The room was his tattoo room and it was like 3D, which I thought was really like a cool idea to do. But yeah, it was a bit overwhelming. It was such artistically streamlined aesthetic. It was like almost like walking into a dream, right? It had kind of that effect because it was all white and the 3D effect combined with that gave it kind of a surrealism about it. Yeah, it felt like like walking into a different world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely left an impression. 
um, did you have a favorite part or what was your, what did you feel the experience was like? Um, I think my favorite part was the walls with all of his writing, like all of his journals and it was categorized with like song lyrics, poems, business ideas. And then I think there were like letters to other people and I thought those were like the most interesting. He talked about his divorce and miscarriages. I don't know, it's very interesting because I feel like journaling is such like a a personal insight on a person. So it was very like cool to see that on display. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that gave a lot of insight of who Tupac was. Yeah. So it was in his own hand and it was just the thoughts that were in his mind. So it did give you a lot of insight on him. I'm trying to think if I had a favorite section in there. I, I think I was just blown away by the quality of the curation, the exhibit itself. It was put together so well. I mean, it was 20,000 square feet. It was... Yeah, it was very, like, meandering. And then we had our own, like, headsets, and you you could listen to either, like, Tupac's music, his voice, his mother's voice, or, like, a narrator talking. Mm-hmm. There was that. Then there were some news clips. Mm-hmm. There were interviews. Music videos. There was a lot. There was a lot of good stuff in there. So, yeah, you know, that's kind of the experience in a nutshell. And it was funny because the other day I was reading something and I'm not going to mention the rapper's name, but his name came up and I said, have you ever heard this guy's music? And Sophie said she had not heard the music, right? And so I found like the top five songs that this guy is known for. This was after going to this exhibit and listening more in depth to Tupac's music. And it was trash. It was very self-centered, objectifying women. It was very sexualized. And it was just all about money and just kind of underwhelming. You said something about the fact that they're so far removed. Yeah, I I think a lot of genres have evolved over the years and like for example country music has changed and my personal take on it is that there isn't not that there aren't any farmers but country music is kind of missing that like farm mentality I feel like it doesn't have that anymore the like newer stuff that you listen to it doesn't have that and the same thing with rap is that I feel like it's become more, like, money-obsessed and more, like, very, like, ego-based music. Not as harmonious as it was in, like, the 90s, as, like, rap was getting more popular. I think at this point, it's more, like, money-focused, ego, and it's like, oh, like, I have all of these women who like me, I have all this money, like, you can't even be like me, like... I'm so much better than you, which like, I understand like people want to feel like that, but I think rap has lost what was like coming out during the nineties. Yeah. I think that it's mainstreamed a lot and I don't know if it's become very corporate. That's for sure. Um, I just think that with each generation, 
that tries to emulate the qualities that made a particular genre popular that that gave it its in essence its soul yeah, or its foundation something is removed and of course other things are added so a lot of the core qualities um the struggles those struggles have not carried forward mm-hmm. because the artists are in a better place. They started out in a better place than the ones that made the genre popular. Yeah. And that's not to say that struggling is good. Although there is something to say about being challenged and how that produces growth. But there's a big difference between seeing about inner city life, seeing about country life, and then singing about excesses, it it's really changed. Well, it, yeah, I mean, it's even like the difference between living paycheck to paycheck and your community, like giving everything to you. Yeah, like having everything from the time that you're born, right? Yeah, like you're going to have different lives and your music, your sound, your experience is going to be a lot different from one another. And I think that we've seen that over the generations, which (laughs) I don't know. It's very like complicated. It's very complex. It's really different. And I think that because songs are a reflection of the culture of the society of the troubles that are plaguing the society at that moment. And it's never going to be the same. Like I said, it's evolutionary, it's dynamic, it's in constant flow and flux and change. And so the music that comes out is going to reflect those changes every so many years. It's going to be very apparent. And so because there's a particular quality to the music of the 90s, the rap of the 90s, Tupac Shakur's music, when you compare it to what we're hearing today, Maybe even it's lost some of its integrity because it's now something completely different of what Tupac Shakur was talking about. And certainly in comparison to the focus was much wider. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like Tupac came around when like the black community needed a voice. And I feel like he was able to fill that void like widely but I feel like rap now, there are so many voices. I think there's always going to be need. It's the same thing that we were talking about I with mean, women. Yeah. But I think that you touched on something that was really important, which is to say that the music industry is saturated. And because yeah. there are so many voices, the ones that are trying to make it are saying, look at me. It's just going to be a spark. And they want to make that spark as big as they possibly can. Tupac was able to make a greater voice. But I think in addition to that, it was his focus on making change, on being much more global, on being extraordinary. Like we said at the beginning, what an extraordinary life he lived. So that's my take on this exhibit. I think it's completely worth going to. And I'll post some pictures. I hope that you enjoyed that episode and thanks so much for putting up with Echo being the third co-host 
I really enjoy getting your questions and your suggestions. I love that you're listening. Thank you so much. Be sure to follow me on social media on the dot com where I will be posting updates, upcoming topics, recipes, and so much more. Don't forget to check out the show notes. Anything that I talked about today will be in the show notes. Stay through the end credits because there are a couple of bloopers that I put up today. I've got many more in the company of friends coming up to next week. I will be posting one that I'm really looking forward to. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the dot com at the Queen Trail Podcast. That's T H E Q U A I N T R E L L E Podcast. Until next time, I am Syl Annan, the Queen Trail, and I wish you passion, grace, elegance, and beauty. Inquiring minds want to know. I mean, that's good because I talked a lot, a lot. Unfortunately, this is going so long. Nope, I'm going to actually look for it. I'm going to actually look for it. Everything I do is, why is this not, where am I?